Today, Londoners have woken up to a very different city. Over half of America is on lockdown. As many of us must stay at home as possible. Hello, my name is Peter Tufano, and you're listening to Series 2 of Leadership in Extraordinary Times from Oxford University's Said Business School. In this podcast, we're sharing insights from our research and hearing from business leaders on the front lines during this historic COVID-19 era. Episode 3, Financing the COVID Crisis. In this episode, we're focusing on the impact of the pandemic on the financial system and the broader economy, and how the impact of the crisis is likely to accelerate economic transformation. Banks were the villains of the 2008 financial crisis. But could they be the heroes of the COVID-19 crisis? Over time, will banks and other sources of finance take over? How will they work with governments? To explore the role of the financial sector in helping the economy to recover, we have two special guests. In conversation here are Sergio Armadi, Group CEO of the UBS Banking Group, and Tim Jenkinson, Professor of Finance here at Site Business School. Tim Jenkinson starts us off with an assessment and overview of the big picture. What I wanted to do was to start off really in the sort of more macro uh, sphere, thinking about the role of the different people who will potentially be financing this crisis. And in my mind, there are sort of three groups of those who are going to finance corporate businesses and indeed other, other organizations through the crisis. The first is obviously the government through direct schemes to fund jobs and all sorts of other things as well. The second one is really the private sector intermediating funds as sort of alongside government, which could be banks with loan schemes, which which are pushed through banks. And then the third one is is really the banks and financial institutions themselves, um, the extent to which they are going to be financing it. And it could be banks, but it could also be real estate companies who are having to defer taking rents from people and the like. And, and Sergio, I was really wondering, you know, what balance do you see between those three different pots of money or pots of financing that you think will, how, how will that play out over this crisis? No, well, I mean, that's a, a very good point. I mean, at the end of the day, uh, in a nutshell, uh, in order to get out uh, of this uh, crisis, in order to manage the first phase of the crisis and long-term uh, get out of this crisis, a collective effort is necessary. So I don't think that uh, the three uh, group of stakeholders that you mentioned, all they need to play uh, an important role. Uh, uh, I think it's fair to say that the government took the lessons learned from the financial crisis. I would say that they were uh, they were very quick and swift in uh, announcing at least uh, measures, which psychologically, in my point of view, was helping. Of course, then in some countries, things uh, got uh, delayed a little bit, but the fact that people knew from the very beginning that they could count on uh, a broader and massive investments by many governments was very helpful. So uh, the banks, you know, we are very uh, happy that uh, banks were not part of the problem or the problem this time, but, you know, are uh, part of the solutions. I think that at least for the time being, that uh, they are functioning really much as, as a transmission mechanism, as you mentioned before, because it's, it's not so easy. It's very difficult for governments to pass the money. And, and in many cases, you know, you need to leverage existing infrastructure and making sure that the money goes to the right place to the extent possible in the most effective way. And I think that banks 
in general, uh, played a vital role in this uh, process. Uh, the third one is, again, banks and other stakeholders, what can they do? Uh, yes, I think that if I only look at our case, but I'm, I'm sure many, many of our competitors have had uh, the same uh, experience. You know, we granted uh, uh, loans and extended credit uh, for an amount that was five times larger than the total amount we pass to clients through the governmental programs. So you can see already that the financial system, uh, you know, the banks were not only an effective transmission mechanism, but also uh, were putting their own uh, risk and money uh, on the table. Now, when you look at banks in general, of course, with going forward, you know, not every bank will be able to continue to feed uh, this uh, system. Also, because one thing we have to remember that banks have a responsibility to clients and to society in respect of being you know, a facilitator and, uh, and, and granting credit, but they also have a responsibility to depositors because people give us the money and expect the money back. So, and the money comes back only if we are able to deploy it in a way that is credible and sustainable. Yeah. You mentioned the real estate sector amongst others. Yeah, of course, in many cases, it, it is possible for uh, owners to grant concessions on, on the rent. But in some cases, you have to also to think about that uh, themselves, they may be in trouble. So it's not easy. And there, I think it's very important that uh, where possible, private uh, settlement or private agreements should be found. But where it's not possible, maybe the government has also to step in and try to find the most pragmatic way to help this uh, uh, issue. Right. No, indeed. And, and, and in your view... I mean, how long, we've obviously had massive government intervention for a long while. And, and, you know, in some respects, this is really just investing uh, on behalf of the taxpayers or the future taxpayers to support the you know, current businesses. And there's a limit. There's obviously a limit to how much, how long that, that can go on. But where do you think we are in that cycle? How much longer do you think government will be directly pumping money in to finance businesses? And, 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 you know, do you think that that we're getting towards the end of that cycle? Or do you think there'll be in the same way, there might be a second wave of the virus, there might be a second wave of financing coming in from government? No, that's, uh, you know, at the end of the day, I think it was necessary in the first phase for governments to take a very pragmatic and quick approach to de facto do a, a helicopter uh, money distribution of money and, and basically you know keep uh, people uh, alive and uh, and uh, there was a recognition that uh, in many cases uh, uh, it was a governmental decision to shut down in order to protect health and the system and so people could not really do anything other than applying uh, and implementing those uh, those orders and uh, and therefore they found themselves out of business and no business can really survive if there are no revenues coming in but i do think that there are there is still room for some fiscal uh, policy expansion but it's not infinite and i think that if the second rounds should try to go into the more strategic part of how you want to help we have to recognize that uh, unfortunately not everybody will be able to survive this crisis because in many cases you are talking about businesses and realities that uh, we're already in very uh, stressed situation entering into the crisis. And this uh, situation has only accelerated now a very critical uh, uh, situation. So we will have to pay attention how to redistribute the money because the point you mentioned is 
quite spot on in, in my point of view, that we need to say that at the end of the day, somebody has to pay. So, yeah. and, and, you know, we're going to have to pay. Of course, you can try to find ways and you have to expect taxes to go up and, but, but also, you know, uh, spending for other uh, investments uh, by the governments will be limited and we cannot afford to distribute money out uh, uh, everywhere. So that's where, again, coming back into, into the private sector, I think the role of banks and financial intermediaries and uh, academics uh, and everybody in contributing, in advising our clients, stakeholders on how to think about the so-called new normal is very important. Yeah, no, indeed. And, and, and do you think, I mean, just to pursue that, that line of, you know, what's the government going to do in the, you know, in the future? Clearly, the first stage of this, their response was understandably to lend, to lend money, to sort of defer tax payments, to uh, pump money out through government loan programs, sometimes guaranteed, sometimes direct loans and things like that. There's clearly a limit to how much some businesses should, can or should borrow, though, isn't there? It's the old debt equity issue that many of these businesses are starting to, you know, you, you stop operating for four to six months and, and put everything on your credit card, as it were, on your, on your loan. You can come out of that looking pretty unsustainable. Do you think that there will be a role for government actually to take equity stakes in businesses in the, in the coming months? I think that in some cases they will particularly but it's much easier for larger groups and more systemic uh, uh, part of, uh, of of the equation when you go down into the sme space i mean it's not easy because at that point in time you need to it takes a lot of uh, diligence due diligence and, and, and knowledge about the situation so it's not going to be easy for governments to step in short term to recapitalize uh, many of, of those uh, smaller uh, realities. And then there is, of course, probably it's more of a political kind of uh, ideological standpoint of view. How far do we want to have governments going into uh, the private sector and, you know, de facto making uh, the delineation between who is doing what in, in the economy and in our society a little bit too complex. So I do think that it's important for governments to facilitate uh, this tra transition. I almost think that it's much better to think about, although we should not be too open and too generous to start with, but being open to forbearance and, and write-offs of potentially part of the debt, rather than becoming a co-owner and making it very, very complex. And in my point of view, way too attractive for politicians. <laughs> yeah, that's an interesting idea that you sort of put in, you, 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 you write off the loans and that's almost like equity in a sense that <laughs> you're sort of putting into it. I think yeah, but, we, you know, but it's, it's, you know, it's something that you need to do it carefully because your yeah. moral suasions, if people start to think that they can do it easily, that's not good. Right? No, that's right. Now we actually have a question a bit, a bit related to this from Kurt in the UK, who says that in the 2008 we had a liquidity crisis. This time we have an impending solvency crisis, which I think is probably true for many businesses. And he asked the question: so, sort of, how are banks going to be able to lend in that situation? And 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 sort of to tack onto that question, you know, I've heard talk that the you know the auditors are going to have a pretty hard time in upcoming audits you know uh, uh convincing themselves that there's a going concern in many for, for for you know that they pass the going concern test in many of these cases so but yeah the question i think directly for for, for you as the ceo of a bank is that you know how are you having to change the way you lend to companies which 
you know, in this where, where many of them are currently, you know, sort of have a high degree, well, not necessarily insolvent, but there is a solvency crisis. Absolutely. That's the real challenge here to, for us and, and, and for everybody to set uh, the level of expectations right on what banks can do on their own uh, in respect of, uh, of funding uh, the situations you mentioned, because you don't want to put yourself into becoming also part of the problem as a system. So yeah. you need to really think about how you can advise and, of course, deploy capital and resources that are there to be used where you believe that there is a fair chance for this entity to go through the, the, the crisis and come out successfully. If it's not the case, you are creating a situation in which the bank, a bank or the banking system could become part of the problem, leading into its depositor clients fearing for their money, and you start to have a run on the bank. And then we're going to go back into square one and where governments will need to come in and doing it, which I don't think that the, the resolution of this issue can be governments putting more money for everything because, um, you know, it's, it's not sustainable. So we need to set the expectations correctly on what banks can do on their own. And just to sort of round off the sort of macro things to begin with, macro questions to begin with, you know, what's your view that at the end of all this, how will the business models of both the financial sector and indeed the corporate sector have changed, do you think? You know, and, and, and indeed, will you assess risk of businesses in any different way? You know, this is clearly something that none of us have ever observed before. And we're used to in, you know, in, in business schools, te teaching people about, oh, you know, the correlation of risks to the stock market, systemic risk is what matters, beta type risk. You know, but then you start thinking, well, is it a big risk to not have a digital channel to your business is a sort of major risk which might impact upon that, which isn't the way, isn't what we normally capture in statistical yeah. models and the like. I'm just sort of curious as to what you think, how you think, you know, our view about risk and the sort of business models that you're prepared to lend to will actually have changed. Well, first, you know, I, I think that we already talking for our own experience, we are already going through the first uh, set of uh, lessons learned out of the last four or five months. And, and one thing is quite clear that we have been investing a lot in technology back front to back in order to be prepared for the future of digitalization. And, uh, and actually what it turned out to be was a very convenient uh, investment that we had to utilize for some things that we never planned for. So such an acceleration of the onboarding of clients that were probably due to use digital channels over the next three to five years, they embrace it in, in three to five weeks. And a massive usage that is going to have a profound repercussions on the way we manage uh, our interaction with clients, the way they interact with us, uh, the, the way we look at our real estate footprint, the, you know, and, and the way we will need to continue to invest in, in technology. And the fact that we were able to have 95% of the people working from home and still the bank was having one of its best quarter and, uh, and is running uh, successfully, it's quite amazing and surprising because our business continuity management program was always designed to an interruption in, in your ability to uh, locate people in a certain building. So right. we would need to move people to another building. 
-hmm. Now we discovered that was not a lot of, nothing to do with physical, was a virus, was invisible. And therefore people need to go home. So rolling out and getting people to say, now you can use all this technology you have to do your job for a moment has profoundly changed the way we communicate and interact. So we're not gonna travel so much as before. We're gonna really arrange meetings in different ways, also with clients and, and, and internally, very profound. In the rest of the corporates and, and the economy, well, of course, the deglobalization that was already going on before COVID is gonna be accelerated because many people are starting to see, well, not only I need digital channels in order to be up and running and to be able to continue to deliver my services or goods, but I may need to profoundly change the supply chain on how I get to my base products. And that will translate most likely into opportunity and cost and challenges in different parts of the value chain geographically or by underlying a business, maybe some increases of cost of the goods, who knows? But of course, people will reassess, for example, how much liquidity they want to add. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So if you think about all this, it's going to take years for the shock to be absorbed. So I can't imagine anybody in the next two or three years not thinking that I need to have a buffer of liquidity that I will not need, but I better be there because you never know what's happening. No, indeed. That's right. And, and, and just in terms of the sort of practicalities of it, do, do you think we will, you, a larger proportion of your workforce will, will only come, will, will come into the office sort of when needed or when, when they have important client meetings and that, and that there'll be some people who, where the new normal is to be in the office two or three days a week rather than four or five days a week? Do you think, do you think there is going to be something as profound as that? No, I mean, look, the peak was 90, 95% of uh, working from home right now. We are already down to the 75%, uh, percent, 70, 75%. Uh, and, uh, you know, I do think that the new normal will be the other way around. Most likely, you're going to have, on average, people working maybe one day a week at home. But this is profound. By yeah. the way, 20%, it's extreme. It's not practical to think that everybody can stay home, but from time to yeah. time, some people will stay home and being, it will be easy. But some others told us, I'm much more productive when I stay home. Or yeah. I know that if I take one day a week, I can do 20 phone calls with clients uninterrupted. Coming up next, Sergio Armadi, UBS Banking Group CEO, and Saeed Finance Professor Tim Jenkinson discuss, among other things, what UBS has been doing to help its customers through the crisis and the issues of private credit. But first, we move now on to the markets and a question that has been baffling even the smartest economic minds. Why, during the worst economic crisis since the Great Depression, have stock prices seemed to be running wild? Just as death tolls globally were spiraling, as were fears about business bankruptcy and unemployment, the S&P 500 and NASDAQ, for example, have gained ground. Why the apparent disconnect between markets and reality? Sergio Armani. I don't know if it's just complacency or maybe there is something more profound that the equity market is telling us that, you know, at the end of the day, uh, rates are here to stay low for long, long terms. Uh, so people are starting to say, well, what is the risk? Uh, 
the risk-free rate and uh, and uh, and the risk premium of many parts of the equity markets should be reassessed, and therefore valuation should be seen in a different uh, way. So the so-called this time is different can drive uh, people to buy into the illusion that uh, things can go over like that forever. So I'm very skeptical. And the reason why I'm very skeptical is because actually you see the credit markets are not at the level of December. Uh, Both investment grade, high yield, and many other asset classes are still midway or they are coming in. It's clear that this optimism has created uh, a little bit of uh, buy, um, uh, buying uh, into the market. But if I look at credit mar- if I look at credit markets, credit markets, and last but not least, banks stocks are probably a better indicator of what the market and and, and the broader investment community thinks about the future. So there is a less rosy picture coming from from there. So I'm surprised and it's, it's way too quick to rebound. Yeah. And it's as I suppose, you know, it could be partly that some of those US indices in particular are very long, heavy on technology, which is sort of obviously a gainer here. So yeah, but, 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 uh, but that by now, every, everything is catching up. Yeah, it's true. Can we shift a little bit to, to sort of what uh, what you've been doing? You know, UBS has been doing for its customers. I mean, how have, how have you been helping your customers through the crisis? And is there anything that's been particularly you've had to sort of change or change your practices or lending practices or the way you do things? Uh, um, just give us a snapshot of, of what, what you've been doing. The most important role that we had was not just to be the transmission mechanism for governments and also give our own, uh, uh, open up our credit lines to, uh, to, to the clients. But I would say, advising clients, no matter if they were corporate clients or uh, individuals, wealthy clients, was uh, helping them to navigate those difficult moments uh, uh, in the way they thought about their assets, uh, their businesses was very important. So I'm, I'm coming back into, into the, the most important part for us was to be up and operational and, uh, and, uh, and to be seen as proactive and, uh, and advising, not just supplying with credit because you know just giving money without the context was not really necessary so i think that this crisis has uh, reiterated uh, to me that uh, banking and big chunk of the banking value chain is still about relationships and advice and human so technology will always come in and uh, facilitate in some cases cannibalize part of the, the value chain but at the end of the day, particularly when you talk about for an entrepreneur, for a corporate, for a, a wealthy person, when you talk about their wealth, their family, how to plan for the future, uh, and so on and so forth, nothing uh, is more important than facing people and expertise and being able to interact. And so technology will be something that people will embrace more. Just to make you an example, we organize conferences on on investment teams or or so on usually you know we have a number of fixed you know average number of participants doing the same conferences like we are doing right now as translated into three times more people more clients attending so when we go back to normal maybe people are more busy and therefore they won't be able to to do what they did before but i'm sure we're gonna have much more participation through 
um, digital channels. Yeah. And in terms of the, you know, one of the things that's happened since the last crisis is that, you know, where banks had to really bolster their capital ratios and, uh, and you know, there was much more care taken about, you know, the, the role of investment banking and corporate banking and, and retail. And indeed, you know, I know UBS has a, has a, has a real focus on investment you know, management as well and, and, and wealth management. And, and do you think now that, you know, obviously banks are in a much better position to lend and to, and to weather these storms? Because after a lot of the loans, I guess, must be going bad in a way or, or looking, looking doubtful. There was a lot of care put to bolster those capital ratios, but were any of the stress tests that were put on banks, did they ever envisage anything like this? Essentially, the large part of the economy shutting down for several months. Was that one thing that was built into those stress tests? No, definitely. Uh, we, we never really uh, stress test for shutting down. But, you know, at, at least stress tests are you know, something that we use as a, you know, one of the most important tools in managing our risk and our capital is a stress test. And uh, we have uh, different uh, taxonomies that we go through and we assess. And, uh, but of course, many of them, you know, what we would call a global uh, economic crisis scenario, where de facto, I would say 80, 90% of what happened, right? So, we couldn't really say, well, it's because people are not able to go to work, but we would say, well, rates goes to, you know, down 100 basis points or, or and uh, equity markets could collapse 20% and you stress uh, uh, your credit. And de facto, you reconstruct something similar to what happened. So in our case, I have to say that many and for many banks, this is something that we could reconcile and correlate with what what we saw yeah and do you think that in general what you're hoping is is that at the moment it's difficult for many businesses to make their interest payments or the like you know and, and so there must be a lot of deferral going on i would imagine across the whole sector just like this deferral of rent payments and deferral of tax payments things like that is is it in, in your in your view going to be a sort of deferral of credit and and do sort of people will build up a you know an obligation to pay in the future but it will be but the amount of actual sort of bad loans that come through might be smaller than people anticipate for, for our own experience i have to say that you know by design by strategic design and by the nature of who we are being a bank that is based in switzerland where we do banking 360 degrees, so we are exposed to personal banking, to uh, SMEs, large corporates. We had the luxury to come into the crisis with a very strong economy in absolute and relative terms, and therefore there was enough buffers of uh, available uh, to absorb the shock. Just maybe go, going back to uh, the government program, it's quite interesting because uh, if I look at, at the credit that we um, granted on behalf of the governments or through the governments, 70% of those clients had no credit with us. I, they were able to run their business without any access to credit. Quite interesting. Mm. So only 30% added credit exposure to us. Now, three months de facto into the crisis, into the crisis, the utilization of the credit line that we granted, it's only 45%. Hmm. Right. 
So we, are, we have a luxury to come in with a strong economy, but I'm sure in certain countries, it's gonna, what you just mentioned is gonna be very challenging, particularly for those sectors that were already weak and facing structural issues, and, and that will be challenging. Clearly, UBS has a particular sort of constellation of, of, of businesses, which is quite heavy on the wealth management side compared to some other banks. And, and do you think that the, the crisis is going to change in any way the relative profitability of the things that banks do? Not necessarily just yours, but, you know, there's clearly retail banking, investment banking, corporate wealth management, things like that. Do you think it changes in any way the attractiveness of those? Because obviously banks are pursuing their own strategies and some of them very different strategies. But is, are there any obvious ways in which the crisis would make one rethink the relative attractiveness of those different types of, uh, types of line of business within a bank? I think COVID has accelerated to some extent something that would have taken three to five years to crystallize into a few weeks. And so in that sense, uh, you will see an acceleration uh, and... and uh, and, and some people will need to really profoundly change their business model or they will be forced to merge or to sell themselves to other players because they won't be able to fund uh, the, um, uh, the technology uh, and, uh, investments that are necessary uh, to survive. The second aspect, is, which is the opposite, is what I mentioned before. Value of advice in for banks has proved to be still an asset. So you need to work on the two dynamics. So basically expect some continuity in the value of advice, although our, our people remains the most important asset we have. What you need to do is to make sure that they get the best tools available to look to be smart, fast, as uh, the situation evolves and change. But on the other end, technology changes everything. Can we just sort of just a, a final sort of area of, of, of questions is I had in my mind was the way other financial institutions are going to help fund the crisis, if you like. And, and I can think of a few of those uh, which, which I just want to touch on. The first one I wanted to ask you about was, if you like, I don't know whether we now call it shadow banking, but you know, private credit. There's clearly been a lot of huge growth in the, in the idea that you know, a lot of the loans that are being given to corporates these days are not going through banks. They're actually going through funds which are raising money from large institutional investors and then doing direct lending into corporates. In my day job, I spend a lot of time on the private equity and private credit side. And that's been, as far as I can see, the hottest ticket in town for the last three or four years amongst institutional investors. What's your sense of that? Because presumably these are these were sometimes lending on a leveraged basis into corporates, which feels like it ought to be, you know, not the place to be at the moment. But have you got any thoughts about private credit and, and that side? I think that uh, this crisis is, uh, is going to be a good stress test for that business model because of uh, in, in, in a bull market and in a, in a normal market environment is uh, easier to disintermediate uh, the more traditional channels. But when a crisis comes and when loan losses will come, you know, uh, you will need to see how much capital is available. And the second point, which even for large organizations, you know, the, the first few weeks of the crisis, there was an element of liquidity tensions in the markets. And, and central banks had to step in. So imagine those smaller entities that have really limited access to capital markets and funding uh, tools. You know, it's not easy to do just brokerage. 
I mean, brokerage, fine. You know, I suspect that, uh, and I see it, we, we also do it already now in Switzerland. We do broker uh, ourselves mortgages. We, we don't keep all the mortgages. Uh, we may facilitate different people. So for somebody to come in and disintermediate uh, 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 the traditional banking channels is not easy. But of course, also remember that uh, many of those realities had uh, regulatory sandboxes that uh, were there to facilitate innovation, which is welcome. But first of all, you know, over time they create an unlevel playing field. And most importantly, when they get to be big or bigger, the necessity for the prudential regulation to come in and regulate will make them very similar to us. Therefore, yeah. a lot of advantages will disappear. Right. Interesting. So it might be that the crisis sort of almost makes these things a bit more regulated and in some ways. Well, I mean, you, you will see when you start to have defaults and people losing money, usually is when regulators comes in and take out the sandbox where the kids can play. Yeah. And, and in terms of the other, I mean, another obvious area which could step up to the plate is, is equity markets. And I don't think we've really seen that play out as much as I might have expected yet. But, but do you think that is going to be a big source of this? It goes back to one of my earlier questions about should government put equity in? You know, the alternative is, of course, the private sector puts equity yeah. in. And I think that you saw that developments in, in the UK, in general, a little bit of that happening everywhere. I do think that in a few months' time, there is a good chance that, uh, you know, once the situation is stabilized, that the pools of liquidity will look for opportunities. And that when people have more transparency and, uh, and guidance about the future, capital may, will be available to recapitalize uh, situations to get them back into a more uh, sustainable standing or to allow some of them to capture the opportunity to grow their businesses uh, both organically or non-organically. Mm. And presumably, I mean, you know, if, if it makes the world of negative interest rates last even longer, which I'm, I'm not sure it does, because after all, the fiscal deficits are going to be such that you might expect these things to go the other way. But but if they are still going to, I mean, you know, Switzerland, I think, has negative interest rates, right? So, you know, it must make that there's still that imperative to sort of find any return. You look to risk assets, don't you? So I suppose that the, the relative attractiveness of, of equity of you know putting equity into these businesses at this stage isn't necessarily you know it's, it's still there relative yeah. to putting your money in and paying the government for or paying to lend to the government yeah well look you know, and there, as i mentioned before there is a lot of liquidity in the system I and mean, if you just look at private equities it's still a lot of uh, you know north of a trillion uh, 1.4 trillions of cash available and of course uh, private equities are investing over you know, over a cycle of at least uh, five to seven years so they may have been busy right now also in, in looking at uh, how to assess their portfolio, put liquidity into the existing portfolio. But I'm sure that uh, part of that plus part of fresh money uh, through other channels will come in and be part of, of the solution. But again, at the end of the day, it all depends how the situation develops uh, in, in respect of uh, coming back to the so-called uh, now new normal and uh, how quickly vaccine and remediation for COVID would be found. So, which I think is going to play out in the next six or nine months. My thanks to Sergio Armati and Professor Tim Jenkinson. My name is Peter Tufano, and you've been listening to Leadership in Extraordinary Times, 
a podcast from the University of Oxford's Said Business School. Take a moment now to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And for more about the series, plus expert analysis and insider commentary, please visit OxfordAnswers.org.